and forever. Let God arise. Amen. Have a seat, please. I think Cullen should have fussed at y'all at the beginning. That was good. Good morning. We're glad you're here. I want to welcome you just like uh, you've been welcomed thoroughly already. And uh, I want to tell you that we're glad you're here. Uh, there's a lot of places you can be on a Sunday morning, and whether you are here physically or here online, we are glad that you chose to worship with us. Hope you'll give us a chance to say hi to you, get to know you a little bit, uh, maybe uh, figure out ways that, that you can become a member of, of, our, of our body here. Um, the few things I want to handle, I always like to handle a little business before we get going. Um, first of all, uh, as as Roger mentioned, this is a time of year that's stressful financially for a lot of folks. Um, we traditionally do a, uh, a, a an angel tree where we uh, help children in our community. Um, but as we're putting that together, I want to publicly say if if there are families with children in this body and you think that you need help this time of year. We would like to include your children. So you email, call, contact me personally. I will be the only one who knows. We are, do not in any way want to embarrass you or anything like that. We just want to bless you. And so uh, I will be the only one who knows anything about it. We will include your children anonymously, and those gifts will go to you, and uh, how you choose to, to pass them out is your business. So uh, I want to say that publicly, uh, give you an opportunity, because we're starting to put that together. I like to have that to people by Black Friday. Friday, so that usually helps them uh, and and both the, the givers and the receivers. Um, so having said that, uh, the next thing on our agenda is the 21st, that is Sunday night uh, before Thanksgiving. Um, we are having what we're calling a grateful gathering. Uh, we are partnering with uh, Faith Lutheran, the Huntsville Nazarene Church, and Huntsville Church of Christ, and we are meeting together at 5 p.m. at the Alpha Omega Auditorium uh, for a time of thanksgiving and prayer. We would love for you to be a part of that. I, I encourage you. This is one of those things that uh, uh, our, our prayer and our hope is that it, it grows to include more and more. But uh, right now, we are trying to take a step out into the unity that our Lord prayed for. And so I hope you'll put that on your calendar and make plans to be there for that. The other thing I want to tell you about, you don't know about yet, is the first Wednesday in December. That is, what date is that? That is December the 8th. That's not the first Wednesday in December, is it? Huh? Yeah, December 8th. So it's not the first Wednesday. Don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Wednesday, December 8th, we are going to have the AD players on tour here in this auditorium on this stage performing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For I want you to make plans to put that on your calendar. That's 6.30 p.m., our regular Wednesday night meeting time. Um, and, and we're going to be in here and uh, this... The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, is the famous C.S. Lewis story. Um, they are going to be performing that here. It's going to be a cool thing, uh, something you want to bring your kids to. Encourage, bring your friends. Um, you hear me talk about open door events. That's what this is. And basically what that means is it gives you an opportunity. Sometimes it's hard to say you want to come to church with me. But it's easy to say, hey, 
Our church is hosting a free production tonight. We would love for you to come join us. What are you doing tonight? You going to sit home and watch TV? Well, come watch live uh, AD players presenting The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right here. That is December 8th. You'll hear more information about that, but I wanted to go ahead and get it out to you so you can make plans to, to do that. Last week, I gave you a memory verse. Anybody remember the memory verse last week? It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 through 18. Anybody remember it? Anybody can say it? Don't blurt it out. Anybody can say it. Anybody remember it? Nobody? Nobody wants to raise their hand. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray continuously, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's the Jeff paraphrase version. It says it a little different than that, but that's okay. That's all we're looking for. I want you to practice that this week, because the first three adults next week after the sermon who say that to Eugene at the hub will take home a frozen turkey. I'm giving you something to be thankful for, all right? Now, there's some of you going, I'm studying this week. I got homework. That's okay. We're going to make this a little bit more fun. So incentives are good things. Incentives are good things. That verse is important. It's important because of the way it connects rejoicing and thanksgiving. Rejoice always and in all circumstances. Thanks. It, it, that through, throughout Scripture, not just in that verse, but throughout Scripture, Joy and thankfulness are intimately connected. We get that. We talked about it a little bit last week. But, but the, our joy is directly connected to our grateful heart. Our joy is directly connected to our thankfulness. Now, come and go. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a state of being. Joy is the state of my heart. And, and finding my joy is one of the ways that is found is through living with a grateful heart, where I don't believe that any of this is mine. I don't believe that I deserve any of this. Now, in this passage that we're talking about, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, the word rejoice is, is the word kairete. Don't worry, there's not going to be a Greek test later. But kairete is rejoice, eucharistete is be thankful. They both share the root kar. Kara is joy. Okay? So, rejoice and be thankful both share the same root, and that root is joy. There's another word in there that shares that same root, and that is the word charis. Charis is the word for grace. The, the, and so you get this little, uh, this little mathematical equation, if you will, that, that the joy that we find in giving thanks is made perfect when firmly rooted in the grace of God. The joy that we find in giving thanks, in living thankfully, is made perfect when rooted firmly in the grace of God. And we get that, but if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, that grace doesn't make sense. 
We don't like to talk. Grace is hard because it doesn't make sense. We want there to be something. Give me something that I can do. We want there to be something on my part that I can do to earn my salvation. So much like the Pharisees, then, we began to codify the gospel. We began to make the good news of Jesus into something like a checklist. We begin to, to separate the good from the bad. We begin to add requirements and we begin to add qualifications and 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 then we find ourselves in a place of paranoia a place of fear because have I done enough have I done the right things did I do the right things the right way is God going to accept the things that I've done and and that leads to a place of judgment whether it's my judgment of others or my perceived God's judgment of me and no matter what we do we cannot measure up to the impossible requirements that we put on ourselves Grace is the key concept that separates Christianity from the other world religions. Um, there's an old story talked about where uh, we were just talking about C.S. Lewis, and they were having a, 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 some kind of convention in England, and there was a bunch of theologians in a room uh, debating over what concept separated Christianity from all other world religions. And they talked about all of them, and Lewis supposedly walked through and asked them what they were talking about, and they told him, and he said, oh, that's easy, grace. Because no other world religion, whether it's the, the, the Buddhist uh, eightfold path or, or whether it's the, uh, the, 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 the Hindu or, or, or the Hindu karma or whether it's uh, the, the Jewish law or the Muslim code of law, all of those involve doing something to earn God's favor. Grace doesn't make sense to us because it says God loves us Period. God loves us because He loves us. But when I get I live in an attitude of gratitude. I live in a place of thankfulness that, that, that I can't explain. I never said we would understand grace because our minds are not going to do that. We don't understand grace because the math of grace doesn't make sense. You know, a few Saturdays ago, we had uh, a deacon, elders, and ministers breakfast. And they have those things, and they talk about these, these, uh, uh, the, the results of the survey and things like this. And inevitably, Jacob and Joe, John Sanders, some of these guys, they start talking about budget. And, and I kind of glaze over. Because that, that doesn't make any sense to me. I tell my girls, I can't help them with homework, because as soon as they brought the alphabet into math, I was out. Um, that I was done. But these guys start talking about math and numbers, and I'm out. I'm, I'm through with that conversation. But grace is something like that because the math of grace doesn't make sense. Let me give you some examples. Think about it. A shepherd realizes that there is one sheep missing from his flock of 100. So he leaves his flock of 100 unprotected, roaming in the field to go rummage around and look through the bushes for one missing one. That's irresponsible. That doesn't make sense. In, in another story recounted in John, a, a woman took a pint 
a, a jar of perfume worth a year's wages and poured it on Jesus' feet. Now imagine this. We just talked about uh, giving and, and the work of the church and being good stewards. If, if, if you heard that we took $50,000 worth of perfume and poured it on the floor of the fellowship hall, you'd be thrilled with that, wouldn't you? Judas gets so mad that he storms out. That's the last straw for him. This is just too much because the math of grace doesn't make sense. Another story from Matthew talks about a farmer. He hired people to work. And, and some clocked in at dawn, some clocked in at the morning coffee break, still more at lunch, some at the afternoon break, and still more just an hour before quitting time. And he paid them all the same thing. That don't make any sense. The math of grace is crazy. It doesn't make sense. It's amazing, though, because throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus continually either lives out, demonstrates, or tells stories about the grace of God. Jesus wants his followers to understand a, a, a world where, where the sun shines on the good and bad, where birds gather seeds for free, neither plowing or harvesting, where, where untended wildflowers burst into bloom on rocky hillsides. Jesus saw grace everywhere, and he brought it out to his followers. He never analyzed it. He never, he never defined it. He didn't, even, he didn't even quantify it a whole lot. He just pointed it out. He communicated grace through his actions. He communicated grace through stories, stories that we call parables. And again and again, Jesus shows us that the kingdom looks like a picture of grace. Philip Yancey tells a story. Jesus didn't tell this story, but he would have, of, of a couple that was going to get married in uh, Boston. This was reported in the Boston Globe and they went down to the Hyatt Regency, the fanciest hotel in that time in Boston. And they booked the banquet room, and they, they, they booked all the decorations and all the stuff that went with it. Um, they, they, they poured over the menu. They made selections of china and silver. They, they got flower arrangements and decorations, and, and, and the bill came to over $13,000. So they left a check for half that amount as down payment, and then went home to do their wedding announcements and all the stuff that, that happened. But over time, the groom got cold feet. And he said, I'm just not sure it's too big a commitment. Let me think about it a little bit longer. And so angrily, his fiance stormed back to the Hyatt to cancel the reservation. And while the young lady at the Hyatt was understanding... She said, the same thing happened to me, honey, but there's nothing we can do about it. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to 1300 back. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party, and so she did. She paid the rest of the money, because 10 years before that, she had been living in a woman's shelter. She had found her way back through the help of, of some, some nonprofit organizations, uh, of some really good people. She had gotten back on her feet. She thought she'd fallen in love. So she had this... Uh, am, I, am I out? She had this... Uh, She had this 
party, and she sent invitations to the homeless shelters. She sent invitations to the, the, the women's shelters. She sent invitations to everybody. And so it was that on June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston had a party such that no one had ever seen. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom <laughs> and sent invitations to the rescue missions, the women's shelters, the homeless shelters. And that night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off cardboard dined on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up on walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, addicts took the night off from their high, hard life to sit inside, sip champagne, and eat wedding cake. They danced to big band melodies late into the night. And that story resonates with us. It resonates with people. Because it sounds like a story Jesus would tell. It's a story of grace. Jesus tells similar stories where he talks about God producing a great banquet and, and calling to people to come to the banquet. And when they don't come, he says, send out to the highways and the byways. Find everybody you can and invite them to this banquet. It's only through the grace of God that you and I are able to call on his name. Paul says it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, Paul understood grace. Paul had lived the majority of his life as a Pharisee in legalism. He had lived the majority of his life enforcing those laws and, and working through those laws. He had excelled in that world, and he eventually calls that all rubbish because he understood grace, and he saw himself as the chief among sinners. And he knew that through, only through the love of Jesus, only through the sacrifice of Jesus, could he stand before God the Father and have a shot at being in the kingdom. It's by grace. No longer on any kind of work that I do. No longer on any, any, anything that I can do. If I could earn it, then Jesus didn't die because I was helpless. He died because I was lazy. And that's a tragedy. That's not good news. We gravitate back to works because it's comfortable. It's easy. Works is simple because I can check it off. But Paul says the only good news is not works-based righteousness or salvation through the law. It is the grace of God. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I once had a lady tell me she couldn't trust grace. I don't trust that grace. It's not really her. She said, I don't trust that grace. It sounds like too much like a party. 
I was always taught that girls, good girls didn't go to parties. I don't want any part of that. It's one of the saddest statements I've ever heard in my life. That in order to feel like you were doing the right things, you would pass up an invitation to the banquet of the king. Jesus continually told stories illustrating God's grace. One of those stories could have went something like this today. There was a young girl who grew up on a cattle ranch right outside here. Her family raised cows. They uh, would make their living off of that, and increasingly she became frustrated with that life. She didn't like raising cows. She didn't want to be a farmer. She had no desire to be a rancher, and she wanted out. They fought continually, her and her parents, because they felt like they were providing her with a good life. She felt like they didn't understand her, and they were never enough. One night after a screaming, yelling fight that ended with, I hate you, she slammed her door and locked it. It did not allow them to come in. When they finally went to bed that night, she packed a few things in a bag, climbed out the window, and was on her way because she was done. She managed to, to, to head towards California because she thought that's where she would find the life she'd always dreamed of. But she didn't make it there. She ran out of money somewhere around Las Vegas, and there she met a man who told her that he loved her, that he would take care of her, And gradually, his love ended up getting her hooked on drugs. And in order to pay for those drugs, she had to find some way to make money. And so she began to sell her body. She slept on benches. She slept in whatever hotel room she could get. She slept wherever she could. And one night, as she was laying there, after having dug through the trash to get a couple of scraps, she pulled out a roll, and for some reason, it triggered a memory. Thanksgiving dinner. Mama's rolls. And her mouth salivated because she could just taste them in her mind's eye. And she kind of chuckled because after Thanksgiving dinner, when the rolls got old and hard, Dad would feed them to the dogs. And she laughed and said, those dogs eat better than I do. And so an idea began to form in her head. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to beg for forgiveness. She scraped up enough money to get on a Greyhound bus. The Greyhound was going all the way to New York City. And so she, she got on the Greyhound, and as she was riding, she borrowed cell phones from some people around her, and she called her parents' number. They didn't answer. So she left a voicemail. Mom, Dad, it's me. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm on a bus, and I'm coming home. I, I'm, I'm going to stop at the Greyhound station about 3 in the morning. And if you're there... I'll know that it's okay, and if you're not, I guess I'll just go on to New York. She left that message, and then she rode through the night worrying. Did they get the message? Did they even check their messages? Did they even know how to check their messages? Would they hear? Would they know? Would anybody be there? Pulled up 3 o'clock in the morning. 
The bus driver says, you got 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Change her life. She gets off the bus. She walks slowly towards the doors of the Greyhound station, and her dad walks out. She's been rehearsing this speech all night, and she walks up to him, and she says, Dad, I'm sorry. I know. And he says, hush. You got time for that. You're missing your party. And inside that Greyhound station are streamers and banners and everybody she's ever known. When we hear that story in the Gospel of Luke, it's called the prodigal son. And we've heard it so many times, we miss the power of it. It resonates with us because it's the story of us. Each and every one of us. It's the story that we don't bring anything to God. We come to him with our prepared speech. Lord, I I want you to know how good I've been. I want you to know what I've done. I want you to know all the things. And he says, hush, you're missing the party. Your bill's been paid by Jesus. This morning, we're going to sing a song. And if your bill hasn't been paid by Jesus, this is your opportunity. Don't miss the party. Because once you accept that grace of God, once you realize that nothing in this world belongs to you, nothing in this world came from you, and there's nothing you can do in this world to make it up to you, it is freedom. That's the freedom Paul talks about in Galatians, that that when the Spirit has set you free, you are free indeed. Not free to go out and act however you want to, but free from that weight that somehow I've got to make it, I've got to be better, I've got to... No, God says... Don't worry about that. You're missing the party. Don't miss the party. Won't you come right now while together we stand and sing.